the public inquiry. I was at an event once a couple of months ago. We were looking at the root causes of some problems we were having with a particular contract. And we were told we were going to do some root cause analysis using a clever method called the Kanbanese method. I think that's how you pronounce it. So I got my pen at the ready. I was ready to write down this brilliant technique to analyze situations, prepared to get some wisdom, only be to be told that the technique was to ask the question, why, five times. Somebody put their name to this, it's a big deal. So your car won't, won't start, that's the problem. So you ask why, well, the battery's flat. So you ask why, well, the alternator isn't working. You ask why, well, the belt is worn. You ask why, well, it wasn't maintained. That's the kind of principle. It didn't blow my mind. <laughs> Hardly rocket science, but the point is that to find the cause, we have to go back to the start. So today, to try and get after the question of why are things the way they are and what do we do about it, I'm going back to near the start, uh, Genesis chapter 3. So I'm going to read from verse 1, uh, miss out a little bit in the middle and join again at verse 17. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and, ate, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. In the following verses, God passes judgment on the snake and the woman. She wasn't named at this point. Um, she wasn't called Eve yet. But then, he, then to Adam he said, uh, joining in verse 17, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. 
Adam names his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. I'm going to talk about three things today. The first is that in most situations, there are two ways. Generally, it's God's way and the other way. There's God's truth and there are lies. In verses 1 to 5, the serpent takes the plain words of God and first of all misquotes them. And then he questions the woman's memory. And then when her memory isn't actually too far off, he then questions her belief and questions if God really meant that. As the story unfolds, not just in the verses we read, but throughout history, we can see that God's words were true. And the twisting of words for convenience and to meet someone's own desires, that wasn't the right way. And we also see that the world still questions the plain words of God, questioning the meaning, doubting the intent, scoffing at God's power, and daring even to judge God by human standards. God loves you and has a plan for your life. Nothing will make you happier than following that plan. And nothing you do will make God happier than following his plan. It's a bit like a sat-nav. Whether your sat-nav is built into your car or on a phone, plots your route to destination. Now, if we're saved, we've already made the most important step. We've got the destination right. Jesus says in John chapter 14, I've already quoted it today, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, God's sat-nav is better than Google. Have you ever asked Google how to get somewhere? And it takes you on some ridiculous route. Um, it doesn't seem to make any sense. But God knows the path ahead. He knows where he needs you to be at a particular point in time. And he knows what route you really should avoid. Isaiah chapter 42 verse 16 says, I will brighten the darkness before them and smooth out the road ahead of them. But do we treat God like Google with a little bit of suspicion? Thinking that our local knowledge is, is better. God may say that, but I, I know these roads aren't here. I know a shortcut. I know that with my sat-nav, I often turn the voice guidance off. Happy that I know roughly where I'm going. I just need to glance down now and again to see if I'm still on track. Am I guilty of doing that too with God's plan for my life? <coughs> Do I think I've got the general idea and I know roughly where I'm heading? So mute the guidance or forget to look at the screen. Miss the warning of traffic ahead or just absentmindedly drive past the turn off. Yeah, all right. <laughs> and just like in real life, sometimes a co-pilot is helpful. 
uh, if you're driving somewhere unfamiliar, uh, that real-life navigation aid can be useful if, uh, if someone has driven the road before or has studied the map or is just paying attention. So in your Christian life, do you have a co-pilot? Someone who can help you to, who's driven some of the roads before, who has studied the map or can just keep you awake. So the first lesson from Genesis chapter 3 is to take God seriously. My way or the highway? Are you going to go my way? There's a couple of song references in there. But the point is that there is God's plan for your life. Take God's plan seriously. There's no need to reinterpret his words to fit in with our version of what we think it should be. We have the gift of his guidance in our lives, his sat nav. Turn it on. See with a close eye on the screen and do what it says. Psalm 37, verse 23 says, A person's steps are established by the Lord, and he takes pleasure in the Lord's way. So let's take pleasure in following God's plan for our lives. Now, of course, part of this analogy is that you still have to drive. This isn't some self-driving car. You're not a passenger. The decisions are still yours. The effort is still yours. The way is the Lord's. The second point I want to take from Genesis chapter 3 is that it's about the environment in which the fall and the first sin took place. One of the most powerful ideas in social psychology is that people's decisions are a product of their environment. And maybe we're guilty of it too excusing ourselves from what we know we should do with justification. Too tired to read the Bible or to pray. Too busy to help someone in need. Not standing up for our faith because it's a hostile environment and we don't want to embarrass someone. But look at the context here in Genesis chapter 3. Well, you'd have to read Genesis chapter 2 to get the context. They were in paradise. There were no complaints. There should have been no complaints. I mean, we could contrast this with Job or the Apostle Paul and many others in Scripture who were in awful situations and yet kept the faith. So if this is what happened at the start, is it about environment? Can we blame our environment? The first sin wasn't because of circumstance. It was paradise. It was a lack of belief and trust in God. It was a failure to join in the relationship with God, hiding from God. So back in the world of social psychology, one of the interesting nuances is that decisions and environment, that the, the influence that environment has depends on what decisions you've already made. If you've already made a 100% decision to take a course of action, the environment has less influence. But if you're just trying to do as well as you can and maybe get a 50% or above, maybe even a 90%, there's that room for, room for movement in your mind. So if you've decided to be 100% vegetarian, you will avoid meat. If you've decided just to cut down on red meat a little bit, then that steak is going to be tempting. It's easier to be 100% committed than 90% committed or 98% committed. 
when the verb practice, do things over and over again, becomes the noun practice with a C, a thing you do, part of who you are, that's when it becomes a reality and a 100% commitment. And yes, I did have to ask my school teacher wife which one was spelt with a C and which one was spelt with an S. <laughs> the word decide, it comes from Latin. It means literally to cut off. So when you decide something, it's about cutting off the other options. A decision isn't something that leaves other options open. That's just a vague aspiration. So what we're talking about here is decision, a 100% commitment. And because in the story of Genesis chapter 3, there wasn't that 100% commitment, there was room for doubt. That's when things started to go wrong. The third point I want to make about Genesis chapter 3 is my favorite point, what God did. So there was a plan. It wasn't followed. Because the individuals had left room for interpretation. And here's what God did. First of all, he called out. Verse 9, he says, where are you? He didn't go and see Adam and stare him in the face. He didn't magically drag Adam into his presence. He called out. He gave the option. And Adam was hiding. Contrast that with some of the great people in the Bible, some of the great leaders. Abraham in Genesis 22, when he was called, said, here I am. Jacob, twice, Genesis 31 and Genesis 46, said, here I am. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses said, here I am. And so did Samuel in, 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 in 1 Samuel. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8 is maybe the more, um, the more well-known verse. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. We could probably do a week of study on just that here I am bit. But that's the first thing that God did. He called out. And then he passed judgment. Verses 14 to 19. God is holy and just. Judgment isn't a choice he makes. It's fundamental to his nature and his being. But there, in the middle of judgment, he also made provision. In verse 21, the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. But if you go back to his judgment on the woman, and it's a bit I didn't read, it talks about, it, 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 it foretells um, the story of Jesus on the cross. When the woman's seed would crush the serpent's head and the serpent would bruise his heel. A recognition that even in judgment, God made provision. And that's the last point of what God did. He gave us a way back. He gave us a way to get back on track. Verse 15 uh, was the one I just, sorry. Um, if you take the, the sat-nav example, when you go off route, you get the little thing saying recalculating route and figures out how to get you back on track again. 
it's not the best way anymore. It might be a little bit rougher. Might be some more traffic. You might have to work harder. But you'll still get back on track. And in all God's judgments and in all our failings, he gives us a way to get back on track. Now, in all of what I've said today, it's probably a fair criticism that I've taken an historical account that's about sin and salvation and applied it in part to the Christian's journey, the pilgrim's process. But I, sorry, the pilgrim's progress. But I see the lessons applying to both. For those who are not saved, for those who are not Christians, the three points still apply. There is a plan. And God's plan is the best plan. God's word is true, and he wants a relationship with you. The second part is still true. You've got to commit to it. 100% commit. Cut off other options. And then the third point that God is calling out. He's made a way to rescue us. He's giving us a way back to that perfect relationship with him that existed right back at the first man and woman. But for Christians, those three things still apply. There is a plan for our lives. Your destination is set. But there are still choices about how you live your life and how you serve God. So the best route still exists and the choice to follow it is still yours. Commit to it. Cut off other options. It's easier to be 100% committed than 98% committed. Don't leave doubt. But if you fail, and we will, God will always be there, calling out to you, calling out to you, calling out to you, and giving you a way back. We're going to sing one more today. Um,